0: It's amazing it's taking this long, but soon people in Ohio will be able to get reimbursed for the money that they lost in their unemployment accounts to scammers. It's the first story we'll be talking about today on This Week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn. I am here with my colleagues, Jane Cahoon and Layla Tassi, counting down the days to Jane Cahoon's departure. It's a very sad time here on This Week (laughs) in the CLE. (laughs)
1: Boohoo. He's <laughs> yeah. He's you sound so upset, Jane. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry.
0: All right. You know, just for that, you go first. Why okay. is it taking <laughs> so long for Ohio to reimburse people who lost their unemployment benefits to scammers? You know, Jane, back back when the pandemic was beginning, we were inundated with emails, you know, just desperation emails from people who could not get answers from the unemployment bureau. I'm kind of stunned by the story that Jeremy Pelzer did yesterday, where they're just getting around now (laughs) to coming up with a system to give people their money who had it stolen by scammers. What's the deal?
1: So if you can believe this, it's because they said the US Department of Labor didn't explicitly say until a couple of months ago that state unemployment programs could do such a thing, that they could reimburse. Though they never said that states couldn't reimburse victims. But anyway, since then, it's taken those couple of months to set up a system to accept applications from people who were victimized, you know, so they can investigate their claims and then pay the money as, as warranted. But, um, so yeah, in about two weeks, they expect to start accepting these, these applications. And the one interesting thing that I thought came out of this story is, you know, we've, we've heard about all of the, uh, People filing fraudulent claims, scammers filing fraudulent claims and other people's names. But this was like a little bit of a different twist. In in recent weeks, we've been hearing about people saying their accounts were actually hijacked, that that somebody got into their legitimate account on the unemployment website and changed bank routing numbers so they could steal their money and divert it. Somewhere else, and it's unclear how many Ohioans have had that happen to them. Um, but you know, the the initial thing we heard when we started pursuing this story was that that the system had been hacked, which was a really disturbing thing to hear. But the unemployment office insists that it was not hacked; that that's not what happened. They said that that when these accounts have been hijacked, it's been because uh, criminals have obtained victims. Private information, login information through various means, including like phishing emails. And um, they also say this has really been minimized, greatly reduced because of these security enhancements that they've made and they have contracts with cybersecurity uh, experts. But the other interesting thing is some people just. Don't believe that, including people like State Senator Teresa Feder, who simply says that I think they're lying. And and State Representative Jeff Crossman, a, a Democrat from Parma, said he's heard from numerous constituents who had their accounts hijacked and and said many of them had the, the benefits routed to a single bank in South Dakota. And he, he thinks that the explanation by the unemployment office is that is crazy. So anyway, he said they're blaming the victim and, and instead of actually doing the analysis to figure out if the system's been, been compromised. So, so that's where we have here. They're, they're denying that there was a hack. We've got these lawmakers who are saying, eh, something's still not right here. Um, but in any event, yes, in a couple of weeks, people can start applying to get their well, money back.
0: I can't wait to see how many do, but and why is it taking two more weeks to get this set up? If the government said months ago you could do it, why don't Crossman and company have a hearing and call these people all in and say, "Show me." I mean, if they're if they're really because look, we heard from all these people that were very upset about everything having done unemployment. Remember, I wrote a column because somebody tried to do it in my name and it turned mm-hmm. out they tried to do it in Houston's name and DeWine's name. I mean, half the state had fraud being perpetrated upon their names. So, so why not have a hearing to, to well, pull in them fact, in and question them again?
1: Yeah, they do have a legislative, a special legislative committee that's been looking into problems with the unemployment system. And they actually did have one of these victims in their, recently, you know, saying that this had happened to her. And she insisted, she said she didn't receive any phishing email. She's computer savvy. And she didn't really appreciate the explanation uh, about, oh, somebody must have stolen, you know, your stuff. But, and of course, she said she went through a nightmare on the phone with them trying to rectify the situation. Does that sound familiar? Um, So (laughs) we do have some legislative oversight here. And I think that Crossman has asked um, Governor DeWine, I believe, to bring in like some sort of cybersecurity force that the, the state has. But the, the ODJFS kind of waved that off. They don't think that's necessary because of all the experts that they've hired to help them.
0: OK, well, I, I, like I said, I can't wait to see how many people uh, apply. I wonder if they break the computer with another inundating <laughs> of the system because the computers date back 20 plus years. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What did former Cleveland Mayor Mike White have to say when he stepped back onto the political stage 20 years after he left it to endorse Justin Bibb for mayor? Layla Tassi, we had a lot of discussion yesterday about whether that was such a big news story. We should put it on the front page of the Plain Dealer, which we did. We haven't put many endorsements out there. I'm going to write a column explaining our logic. I've already heard from at least one person questioning it. Mike White had a lot to say, though, and he had a lot of comparisons to a young eager politician from yesteryear.
2: Yeah, named Mike White. <laughs> so the public the public last saw Mike White kind of ride off into the sunset to, I think, I want to say raise alpacas and make wine in, uh, in rural Ohio when he left office back in 2002. But he has quietly remained behind the scenes in Cleveland politics. And he chose this as the moment to kind of step back into the spotlight with this ringing endorsement for Justin Bibb. He said that Bibb is the only candidate that gives people hope, and he likened Bibb to himself, saying that he checks all the boxes, just as White did when he announced his bid for mayor all those years ago and and eventually rose from the field of candidates to defeat George Forbes. He dismissed all the criticisms that Bibb is too young or inexperienced. He pointed out that he himself was 37 when he ran, I think the second youngest mayor in Cleveland's history behind Kucinich. And he said youth didn't impede him. And then he made a great point. He said, I hear also that Justin hasn't been in politics for very long. Look what politics has got us. Look what business as usual has got us. We don't need business as usual. We need a new day in Cleveland. And I think that's well said. I agree. I think in this race, the longer a candidate has been in Cleveland politics, The weaker we should view their candidacy because they're blamed for the status quo (laughs) so um so seth richardson reported that candidates started approaching white about three years ago and that he decided about a year and a half into that that he would stand with bib so you know how does this help bib bib already appeals to younger progressive voters but white's endorsement gives him an in with older voters who remember the white era as a high watermark for cleveland And so, of course, you know, as you mentioned, Mayor Frank Jackson, another political heavyweight here, has thrown his support behind Council President Kevin Kelly. So that sets up this interesting dynamic. And then Dennis Kucinich, at almost the same time as the Mike White announcement, was holding his own press conference in a hallway at the West Side Market, which Seth described as a much more muted event, (laughs) to announce that Kucinich had earned the endorsement of former Congresswoman Mary Rose Okar. Uh, you know, I don't know. She served in Congress from 77 to 93. So I, I don't know what kind of voter Kucinich is trying to court here, but he's really reaching well, back into the annals of history with that one. He um, already
0: has that vote. I mean, that that, that the O'Car endorsement is in the, in the same league. The, we, you know, we talked about Mike White's endorsement and the significance of it yesterday um, because he had not done anything in 20 years. Some of the pushback that that I heard yesterday was, hey, you're forgetting that when he left, you know, there, there was a lot of criticism of him, and that that's true. And but but if you think back to when Mike White first was elected, the youthful Mike White, and his first term, and he packed City Hall with all of these competent people that are still around today, um, it, it, it people remember that fondly. He gave Cleveland. It strut back. The, the the Gateway project was done, and you know he did a lot of very good stuff in his first term. By his third term, I was covering him. Um, you know, he, he he his cabinet had withered away. I mean, his finance director's previous job was running an ice cream shop, literally. And and he, Mike White had a very um, low tolerance for any kind of criticism. At the end, but he but he was still a strong leader. People don't remember we had a KKK rally in his final term. Uh, that could have just broken the city apart. And he very effectively managed it to make sure that that everything was contained, that people got their free speech rights. Uh, he was a strong leader. I think with the prism of 20 years, people look back fondly on his leadership and that means a lot. I do wonder, you brought up uh, the endorsement of Kevin Kelly by Frank Jackson. You know, Frank Jackson is loyal. We know he is loyal to a fault. Kevin Kelly has been very loyal to Frank Jackson, so Frank Jackson kind of owes Kevin Kelly the endorsement. I just wonder if deep down, because he's worked with Mike White, he and Mike White have had conversations over the years. Deep down, he's actually rooting for Justin Bibb. Uh, He'll never say because he's so loyal he will be a stalwart for Kelly, but I, I bet that White called him to say, hey, I'm not endorsing Kelly, but I'm going to endorse for the first time. I'm going with Justin Bibb. It would have been interesting to hear that conversation.
2: Right, right. You know, I want to put you on the spot a little bit, Chris, (laughs) just because you brought up, uh, you know, Mike White, you know, you're talking about Mike White's, uh, how his last term in office um, differed greatly from, from the first two. And you covered that term. And that was sort of the you know, the heyday of your city hall reporting career. <laughs> and I was, you really kicked him around a lot. And <laughs> I was just wondering, you know, yesterday when we were talking about this, you had said that that's, you know, not necessarily reflection of your evaluation today of his time in office and, and whether it's good that Justin Bibb has him in his ear during his campaign and beyond. And I mean, so could you talk a little bit more about that? I just wanted to, to, uh, pick your brain yeah, I, on that. Look, when
0: I, <laughs> I I I arrived in Cleveland in 96, I think, I think he was like. Re- was he like in 96? Was it 97? Um, and it didn't take me but a few months to realize there probably is, there are a few greater challenges in journalism than covering Mike White. I mean, he, mm-hmm. he's, he was a dynamic guy. He was a, energetic guy but he was getting kind of kind of crazy and I'll, I'll never forget the first time I interviewed him they put me in a room in City Hall and I'm sitting there and he walks in he goes hey can we sit can we change seats I, I always like to have my back to the wall And I thought that was well, but it's (laughs) It's like a weird mob thing. (laughs) This is a guy who liked to have his back to the wall. Uh, And and look, he's a smart guy. The thing that blew me away, Mark Bosberg and I were covering him. And this was before people considered emails, public records. So so it was before public officials were more careful about what they put into email. And we did a records request for all of Mike White's emails and they delivered them in, in a truck on a pallet. It was cartons and cartons, thousands and thousands and thousands of pages printed out of his emails. And we went through them and we did a whole bunch of stories out of them. It was you know, it was, there was great fun stuff in there and, you know, about the disastrous meetings he'd had with Mike Polancic and things. But what really came across to us was a guy who who cared deeply about his city mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. deeply that if he was out going somewhere and he hit a pothole, he would write this furious email to his public service director to roast him because there was a pothole on the street and y- you could see it. And and there was no way you could fake that. I mean, he cared about the city, he cared about the people of the city. He, I don't know why he, he became so intolerant of criticism by the end. He, he stopped talking to us. I don't think he, we had a, um, interview session with him or with our editorial board in his final three years i think the last time we talked to him was when he came over to talk about his planning for that kkk rally but but the the sum total of his time in office was a plus for cleveland and Mm -hmm. and the energy i wasn't here for his first term but i've talked to a lot of people who were and the energy and enthusiasm he brought to city hall it was all about hope i mean that's that's what he gave to the city was hope and I thought it was fascinating yesterday. We our editorial board used that word strongly in our editorial. I thought it was interesting that he used the same thing. He's endorsing Bib because Bib can give the city hope again. So that that's what it's about. I mean, he, yeah, he left. It was ugly. I mean, it, I mean his last few years um were were ugly and caustic and it probably would have been better for his legacy if he'd only served two terms. Something you might even be able to say about the current mayor, but, but, you know, that's, that's what it is. I mean, he was kind of, he
2: was kind of a mean guy, wasn't he? I mean, I I was, I've read over many of the old clips where he, I mean, the way he would uh, go about, you know, firing people even in, in his, uh orbit and was sort of, uh, you know, cutthroat and just kind of mean, right? So but you don't think that that sort of mentorship is bad for someone who's up and coming? And I don't
0: know. I don't know if I'd say mean. I mean, I I think he was demanding. I think think he was frustrated Mm -hmm. at the level of his cabinet at the end because he wasn't surrounded with the quality of people he was surrounded by in the beginning. Ah. But the other thing you got, he was a very effective communicator. He, you know, the, the one of the reasons he won is he he was charismatic speaker when he when he you know, nobody expected him to beat George Forbes. George Forbes was this gigantic political figure that everybody would thought would win. And White went around town talking to people and people believed in him. So mm. that that's why I think it was such a big deal for him to come back after 20 years of being away to say, I see myself in him. Cleveland needs to have that hope again. It's time for yeah. change. That's really significant. So much more significant than Frank Jackson coming out and saying, I support Kevin Kelly because they've worked together all this time. You right. fully expected Frank Jackson to do that. And, and I, I don't think there's anybody who could move more votes right now in Cleveland than Mike White with that mm. endorsement. And, and Justin Bibb clearly has momentum. I mean, yeah. it's just—can he keep it? Can he can he deliver it? He's got to work it, but he's also surrounded by a whole lot of really smart people now, who are fully committed to him. Joe Roman, the former GCP chief, um, is is there. He was there for that announcement. I mean, this is—it's th- there's some substance behind behind Justin that will help him as he navigates the difficulties of City Hall if he were to win. You're listening to this week in the CLE. What are some of the questions Cedar Point refuses to answer about the horrifying accident over the weekend? And doesn't Cedar Point care enough about its patrons to be transparent? Jane Cahoon, this one is truly frustrating. I mean, a big piece of metal comes flying off a popular roller coaster, slams into a woman's head. And and we don't know anything beyond that, except what eyewitnesses say, which was this was horrifying.
1: Right. I mean, some of it you might be able to chalk up to, you know, protecting people's medical privacy. But the fact is they, they just haven't been, you know, they haven't been forthcoming with with facts here. The way Susan Glasser summed it up, we have more questions than answers about this incident. We just know the very basics. As you said, this metal object fell off. It was the top thrill dragster um, a train as it was ending its run, and this woman was standing in line waiting for, for the ride. You know, she got taken to a local hospital, and all we know is she was transferred somewhere else. So we don't know her condition, but you got to believe if they transferred her, this is serious. It's very serious, and people saw her bleeding and so forth. Um, so in addition to not providing any information on that, uh, Cedar Points also refused to answer you know, what caused this coaster to malfunction, what their inspection process is for it, and whether that process broke down. They they simply say their focus has been on the victim and her family and they have no other information to share. So consequently, we've got all sorts of speculation on social media ab- about it, um, so, uh, and we have heard from a couple of witnesses. One described it as a like a metal disc flying through the air, and another said it looked like a like an L bracket, like a heavy steel L bracket. and um but uh, you know, that we can't get a police report on this. The Sandusky police helped, but they said you know, they were just assisting. so and then Cedar Point has its own police department, and they haven't released a report. Um, so, you know, it's just, it's a lot of just a lot of questions. Uh, well, going and one,
0: here. one of the people in the story was saying, you know, this is the time the chunk of metal hit somebody in the head. There's probably other times where chunks of metal missed. I mean, why would yeah. anybody go to a theme park? Where chunks of metal are flying off rides at high speed, possibly whacking people in the head, and they really should be explaining this because, yeah. you know, Layla, you were just there. Would this make you think twice about returning? Uh,
2: yeah, you know, I, I, I mean, I don't know about about returning, but um, I don't know this. That is, it's terrifying to think about this. You know, I have, I have one of my daughters is uh, she's just starting out her roller coaster riding career. She's seven years <laughs> old, and she is a catastrophizer you know when you're waiting in line for half hour she spends all that time watching the ride and coming up with a list of ways that it could fail and kill someone and by the time she gets to the front she's getting in her in her seat and the person who's checking her restraint she's peppering them with questions like what happens if my head hits this and then what happens if I hit that thing And, (laughs) and, and, and I'm listening to this and I'm just like kind of chuckling to myself and you know the lady's like you know you'll be fine. Don't worry. And you won't be fine. I've been trying to shield my kids from hearing this story about this terrible thing that happened because, you know, I've told them so many times Cedar Point is one of the safest places you can go, even though you're doing these thrilling things. Um, You know, years ago, I did a story about um, about people who there was like a a college class and they were taking some psychology uh, course about facing your fears. And the teacher took them. The professor took them to Cedar Point uh, so that some of them who had fears of heights or whatever would face their fears. And it was some, you know, big project they were doing. And they took me behind the scenes at Cedar Point to show me how uh, involved their inspection process is and how high tech the inspection process is. And ever since then, I have felt so confident in Cedar Point's safety uh, and security. And now I'm like, how could this have happened? Yeah. So so I don't know, I don't know what my takeaway is from this, but I do want to hear some answers. And I think that they owe that to their to their right. customers.
0: Yeah, this is it's shameful the way they're treating the public with this. They owe answers. And it, you know, or warn people wear helmets when you get on our roller coasters. You're yeah. listening to this week in the CLE. Three months after Cuyahoga County opened a much-anticipated diversion center to humanely treat the mentally ill and those with addiction problems who commit crimes rather than jailing them, Cleveland is not sending people to the center. Layla Tassi, Adam Faris did a great story about this yesterday, laying it all out. It's Talk about shameful. Cleveland arrests more people by far than everybody mm-hmm. else combined, but they're not participating. So right. Cleveland residents who are mentally ill, or have addiction problems, are getting lesser treatment than the people in the suburbs. Why?
2: Yeah, it seems Adam really got to the heart of the matter here in this story. The Diversion Center is is housed at Oriana House at East 55th Street, and it opened back in May after years of planning. And the point of this facility is to allow people to get mental health and addiction treatment before they enter the criminal justice system. But Cleveland City officials have yet to really roll out a policy for how The frontline police officers are supposed to be using this $9 million program. Cleveland City Prosecutor Akilah Jordan also wants that policy, when it's crafted, to include a provision that requires officers to call her office before taking someone to the diversion center, an obvious roadblock to the way this system is supposed to work, right? I mean, of the 43 people who have been brought to the center as of August 13th, only seven have been taken there by Cleveland police. About 80 percent of county jail inmates are brought in by Cleveland police. So obviously this there's a lopsided, you know, something is wrong here. Here's how the system is supposed to work. Officers who encounter someone accused of a low level nonviolent crime with no history of violence or sex offenses, they call frontline services, which is a crisis intervention hotline. And frontline workers determine whether the officer should bring the person to the diversion center for treatment or to the county jail. Admission of the center is voluntary and the process is really streamlined to make it easy on police officers who believe a person could be a candidate for this program. And then when they get there, the center is staffed with nurses, psychiatrists, doctors, and specialists who provide treatment. Employees then create a plan for the person to get higher level treatment elsewhere. A great idea. Sounds great. Common Police Judge Dave Mattaya, who runs the drug court docket, has written to Jordan asking her to stop pursuing this policy that is going to impede police officers' ability to use the center, especially considering that the center is supposed to be around the clock and the prosecutor's office is only open for limited business hours. Jordan wrote back and said, well, I mean, she said a couple of things, that she thinks it's important for her office to have oversight on who's going there, even though she didn't really explain why, and that she could improve staffing to oversee the diversion process if only she could pay potential recruits more money. So she kind of made it about that. Uh, Not on point at all. (laughs) So other police departments are reporting the system is going very well. They have no problems with it. And, you know, it obviously provides a huge service that had gone unmet for so long and uh, hopefully they will iron this out and uh, create that policy uh, post case let,
0: <laughs> let me ask you something. You know, the Diversion Center is one of the signature projects of Armin Budish. He started talking about it when he was first elected, and he worked pretty steadily to get it done. It took forever, but, you know, county moves slowly. Is, is it possible that this is some kind of city-county rift nonsense? I mean, I, I would think that somebody would go to Frank Jackson because this is... Heart and soul to Frank Jackson, right? Taking care of the least of us, and because of this policy, Cleveland is not taking care of the least of us. It it it, is there. Is this political nonsense getting in the way? This makes no sense.
2: I hadn't thought of that, but that's a that's that's a plausible theory. We've seen this kind of thing happen a lot, so. Who knows?
0: <laughs> well, I guess I guess the next step is to actually ask Frank Jackson. He's the one that picks the city prosecutor. It's not an elected city prosecutor. So if the city prosecutor is doing something counter to the best interest of the citizens of Cleveland, you would think the mayor would step up and say, cut it out or I'll put somebody else. True.
2: In. I mean, but- you know, we also know by experience that sometimes when we think that there is a, you know, that there's a high level problem going on, Um, We we ask Frank Jackson and he's like, oh, I didn't even know that that was happening. Thank you for bringing it to my attention. I will fix it right away. And that has happened many times as well.
0: That's a possibility. That's what I'm saying. I, I guess the next step is to elevate it to him because this is the kind of thing that he cares a great deal about. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. The circle is complete. What did a bunch of private music clubs in Cleveland get together to announce Wednesday afternoon? Jane Cahoon? you're not going to see a show now unless you are what
1: you've got to have proof of vaccination or a negative COVID test to attend. This is more than a dozen music clubs and theaters in Northeast Ohio that are getting together to announce these new safety protocols at their venues. I mean, a lot of them, a lot of the um, musicians and other acts that tour are, are demanding this, but you know, they, the, these venues include the Agora, Beachland Ballroom, Bob Stop, the Foundry Concert Club, Grog Shop, Happy Dog, Jilly's Music Room in Akron, May Hall's, and the Music Box Supper Club. And that follows, we already had announcements by, by Live Nation, and they handle concerts at the House of Blues, Jacob's Pavilion at Nautica and Blossom, and then AEG, which operates the Agora. Uh, you know, so they, they've already made similar similar announcements. I guess, you know, they said they all want to have the same base policy so their, their fans can understand it and feel protected when they come out to support live music. So these policies go into effect on September 7th. So yeah, you got to show proof of vaccination or a negative test within 48 hours of entry. And while masks are going to be encouraged, they are not going to be required.
0: You know what's sad is, is I, I was talking to the head of one of these clubs i'm not going to say who it is because i don't think he was thinking who's on the record uh but but and it was a few hours after they announced this it was probably not even three hours after they announced it and already their switchboard they were getting the most hateful kind of calls that you can imagine you know he has a bunch of young folks that sell tickets so that they're, they're sitting there and people were calling them and just saying the most horrible things because of this policy mm-hmm. and, and it's just odd i mean this is, that that's what happens you're saying, okay, we're going to have vaccines or masks, and it sets off this this tiny minority of people who are very vocal, but they feel empowered to to say hateful, horrible mm-hmm. things to people they don't know when this is only about public health. I mean this is just an effort yeah. to keep everybody safe and they're taking that kind of abuse. It's really It's the of... same
1: abuse that I think school officials are taking when they when they try to require yeah. masks.
2: Can I jump in okay. with a random question that just popped into my mind? Leila Tassi. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm wondering now about what about the the convention center, the Huntington Convention Center. I mean now that the county is is, you know, requiring masks for employees and talking about requiring vaccinations and things like that. And now we're seeing all these private, um, you know, these private venues requiring, you know, vaccination or pr- proof of of, uh, you know, COVID free test results and things like that. What about conventions? I mean,
0: maybe we'll have to see, I don't know. I mean, there may be contractual stuff in there, but we'll have to see. I, I mean, I think, I think it's coming. I mean, as you know, um, Hannah drown watched the, uh, the the doctors talking about sending kids back to school and it's terrifying we're going to have some more content about this i imagine that that will come there too you're listening to this week in the cle we didn't get through a lot of questions today that's a good sign of good discussion Eric Isaac just published a story about critical race theory. No, it's not an explanation of critical race theory. It's a deep look at why people in Northeast Ohio have become so alarmed by it that they're showing up at school board meetings to scream at school board members. It's great stuff. We'll be talking about it tomorrow. Check it out on Cleveland.com. Thanks, Jane. Thanks, Layla. Thanks to everybody who listens to this podcast.